to the Notre Dame International Security Center uh, speaker series for the fall. Our first speaker today is John Mearsheimer. Um, John Mearsheimer is the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago. He graduated from West Point in 1970, spent five years in the Army, uh, then went to Cornell for a PhD, graduated in 1980, uh, after a couple of fellowships, landed at the University of Chicago, where he currently teaches and, and writes and advises students. Um, he's had an illustrious career, publishing lots of articles and books, including Conventional Deterrence, uh, Tragedy of Great Power Politics, and of course, The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities. Um, perhaps the only blemishes on his record are three, uh, which are sitting in this room insofar as he uh, was the advisor for both Professor, for Professor Desch, Professor Rosado, and myself. Uh, so we really forgive him for that, uh, although I'm certainly very glad about it. Um, now before I uh, move on to let John start, I have a couple bits of business. So my name is Rose Kalanick. I'm a professor here, an assistant professor. Um, and one met and bolt, we have a sign-up sheet to get emails. Um, so if you're interested in coming to additional talks that we have this semester, please give us your email address. We'll sign you up, and then you'll get notifications and copies of the paper ahead of time. Um, the next talk is actually going to be Rose McDermott from Brown University. And she's going to be talking about emotional sources of escalation in cyber conflict on Tuesday, October 2nd. Um, the other point I'd like to make is about the ground rules for the talk, especially since this is the first one of the semester. Um, so John is going to talk for 25 to 30 minutes, um, and then he will take questions from the audience. Um, I'll keep track, I'll keep a list of who wants to ask questions next. If you have a question that is just a regular question, um, there's the one finger rule. Uh, if you have a question that is specifically on the topic that we are currently discussing, you can hold up two fingers. That means that that gives you a chance to skip the queue and get in on the point while it's being made. So if you want to get in on the point, show two fingers and I'll call on you. Um, if you abuse the privilege of using two fingers, um, future questions will go to the very back of the line of the queue. Okay? I'm going to ask you all to keep your questions brief, um, and I'm going to ask you if your answer is brief-ish. Uh, because that's what you always did at seminars that we had at Chicago, and it seems to work pretty well. Um, so without further ado, uh, I present to you John Mearsheimer. Yeah, I'd actually prefer to stand up and just sort of move around. Being a New York ethnic, uh, I like to talk with my hands and move when I'm talking. Uh, second thing is, I just have to check that I know what I'm doing here. I think I do know what I'm doing here. It's quite amazing. I was wondering how I was going to see these things uh, and talk to you at the same time, but now I realize it's right up there as well as behind me. Uh, it's quite a high-tech operation you have here, Mike. Uh, thank you, Rose, Mike, Sebastian, and others for inviting me to be here today, and thank you all for coming out. Uh, it is truly a humbling experience to see so many people come out to hear what I have to say. Uh, I really do mean that. Uh, the subject I want to talk about today is the rise and fall of the liberal international order. And there's a great deal of talk about this in the media these days because most people believe the liberal international order is in trouble. 
Uh, I think that most people believe it's in trouble because Donald Trump is the president and Donald Trump clearly has his gun sights on the liberal international order. There's no question about that. But I think that's the wrong way to think about this. Uh, the fact that the liberal international order is in bad shape is what caused the rise of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not a cause of the problem. He's a manifestation of the problem. So I'm not going to talk much about Donald Trump because he doesn't really matter very much. And my basic argument here, he doesn't matter much in this regard. He matters much in a lot of other regards, obviously. But my basic argument here, and it'll take me a while to get to it because I have to lay out a lot of definitions just so you know exactly what we're talking about when we say the liberal international order. My basic argument is that the liberal international order contains the seeds of its own destruction. It was set up in ways that it was designed to fail and it cannot be repaired and it's basically all over with. And that's not, again, because of Donald Trump. Donald Trump got elected in good part. Brexit in good part is a manifestation, a result of the failure of the system. One other quick preliminary point. Uh, I wrote this book that many of you were kind enough to buy uh, called The Great Delusion. That is a somewhat related subject, but it's a different subject than the one I'm going to talk about today. The book basically deals with American foreign policy and the pursuit of liberal hegemony. And what I'm interested in doing in the book is explaining why any state that pursues what is a genuinely liberal foreign policy is destined to get itself into serious trouble because it runs up against two of the more powerful isms in international politics, which are nationalism and realism. So that book is really about American foreign policy, which has some bearing on this for sure. But this is a talk that focuses on the liberal international order and the problems with that order. Okay? Here's the basic set of questions that we have to talk about. First, I've got to tell you what the liberal international order is. Uh, I've read countless pieces on the liberal international order and hardly anybody ever defines exactly what they mean by the order. And as I'll make clear as we go along here, it can mean many different things. So you want to know exactly what John is talking about when he talks about the liberal international order. Second, you want to know what other kinds of orders there are in the world besides the liberal international order because that helps put the liberal international order into a broader context. Third, you want to think about the question of what role orders play in the world. Why is an order important? Right? Then fourth, you want to talk about, you want to understand all about the history of the liberal international order. When did it start? Right? What were the other orders that existed beforehand? And so forth and so on. And as will become clear here as we go along, most people believe the liberal international order got started after World War II. And the liberal international order existed from roughly 1945 up until Donald Trump got elected. I think this is fundamentally wrong, as I'll make clear here. The liberal international order got started when the Cold War ended, and we did not have a liberal international order during the Cold War. There was a sharp disjuncture between what we had during the Cold War and what we had afterwards. And this distinction is based in good part on the definitions that I'm going to lay out in the beginning. 
And then we get to the fifth question, which is really the most interesting. Why is the liberal order under threat today? And this is where I'm going to tell you why I think the order contains the seeds of its own destruction. And then finally, I'll close by talking about what the future looks like. Okay, what's a liberal international order? My view is that the only way you can talk about this is I have to tell you what an order is, what it means to say it's international, and what it means to say it's liberal. Okay, just very important that you understand what each one of those words means. Okay, an order is a cluster of institutions that help with the general governance of states. An order, an order is a bunch of institutions. And institutions are comprised of rules. I'll talk more about this in a minute. These institutions are set up so that governments can coordinate their activities in rational, legal ways. Uh, now, you say to yourself, what exactly does he mean when he talks about an institution? Institutions, as almost everybody in the international relations literature agrees, institutions are rules. Sometimes the word norms is used, sometimes the word laws are used. Um, but they're, they're basically rules that prescribe acceptable behavior and proscribe unacceptable behavior. And let me just give you some examples of, let's just talk about a security order. NATO is an institution that is at the heart of a security order that the United States created during the Cold War. NATO is basically all about rules that govern how the member states in that alliance interact with each other. If we talk about economic institutions like the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank. These institutions are basically rules that the member states agree on. They agree on what the rules will be and they say that they will obey the rules because they think it is in their interest to have those rules and to obey those rules because it makes it much easier to facilitate intercourse of all sorts in international politics. If you had to run the Cold War all over again, you'd definitely do it with NATO. You need a world trade organization of some sorts, whether it's the actual WTO or its predecessor, GATT. You need rules that can help govern economic relations between states. So if you look around the world, you see all these institutions, and of course these institutions are what Donald Trump had his gun sights on, right? He doesn't like NAFTA, he doesn't like the WTO, he doesn't like the EU, he doesn't like the IMF, he doesn't like the World Bank. Just listening to me list all those institutions tells you that there are lots of them out there. Some of them are economic, some of them deal with security, and some of them are mixed institutions. And then, of course, there are institutions like the United Nations, which you all know well. And before that, there was the League of Nations. But the thing that you have to drill into your head, you have to remember, is that institutions are really all about rules, and orders are clusters of institutions. Very importantly, 
Order does not mean peace. When we talk about maintaining an international order, we're not talking about maintaining order. We're talking about maintaining an international order. And order is not the balance of power. You know, somebody might say that the existing balance of power in the world, the global distribution of power, is the order. You can argue that that should be the case, but that's not what most people, and it's not what John means when he talks about order. Again, an order is a cluster of institutions. International. To be international, an institution or an order must include at least all of the world's great powers. And ideally, it would contain virtually every state in the system. I contrast international, international orders with bounded orders. Bounded orders do not include all the great powers and are usually regional in scope. And the argument I'm going to make here is that during the Cold War, you had a bounded order that was dominated by the United States in the West, and you had a bounded order that was dominated by the Soviet Union in the East. Okay? That's a bounded order, and it's different than an international order. An international order includes all the great powers in the system. Liberal. Uh, to have a liberal international order, the dominant state, and I'll explain to you later why I'm only talking about a single state, the dominant state has to be a liberal democracy. And the goals of that liberal order, and of course the goals of the dominant liberal democracy are, number one, to spread democracy around the world, promote economic openness, and integrate states into more and more institutions. These are basically the three liberal theories of peace. What you want to do is you want to spread democracy all over the planet, number one. Number two, you want to promote economic openness. This is sometimes called globalization. The more open the economic system is, the better. And then the third thing that you want to do is you want to build more and more institutions. You want to expand existing institutions. And you want to go to great lengths to incorporate more and more states into those institutions. You want to get the Soviet Union into institutions if you can. When that breaks up, you want to get Russia into institutions. You want to get China into institutions. Right? That's the basic goal here. Right? And the basic argument I make about a liberal, liberal international order is that the dominant state pays little attention to balance of power politics. And as it become clear here as I go along, you can only have a liberal international order in a unipolar system where there is a single great power that is a liberal state. All right. What are the alternative international orders? I argue that there are basically two factors that underpin the shape of an international order. Two factors. The first is the number of great powers in the system. And the second is the political ideology of the dominant state. Anytime you hear there's an international order, you want to ask two questions. What's the underlying balance of power look like? And what is the political ideology of the dominant state or states? Those are the two questions you want to ask yourself. And basically, what you get, you get three alternative international orders. 
You can have an agnostic order, you can have an ideological order, or you can have a realist order. Okay? Now, when you have an ideological order, when you have an ideological order, that's where you get a liberal order. It's very important to understand a liberal international order is not a realist order. It's an ideological order. Another example of an ideological order would be if the Soviet Union had won the Cold War and communism was a wildly popular ideology in many countries in 1989. And again, it's the Soviet Union, not the United States, that won the Cold War. You would have had an ideological order. It wouldn't have been a liberal international order. It would have been a communist ideological order because the communists, like the liberal Democrats in the West, would have been interested in spreading that order all over the planet. It was an ideological order. Okay. My argument is that if you have a bipolar world or a multipolar world, in other words, where there are two or three great powers, two or three great powers, those great powers have to compete with each other according to realist dictates, and therefore the international order will be realist by definition. If, on the other hand, you have a unipolar world, you have a unipolar world, one great power in the system, it can be either ideological or agnostic. Does everybody see that? Ideological and agnostic go along with unipolarity. Realist goes with bipolarity and multipolarity. And what agnostic is all about is an order where the dominant power has no universalistic ideology. If you could hypothesize a situation where China was a unipole, you would have an agnostic international order because China is not governed by a, a universal political ideology despite the fact that it's nominally interested in communism. This is not like the Soviet Union, okay? So basically, I argue, you get an agnostic international order when you have unipolarity and, and a hegemon or dominant state that has no universalist ideology. You get an ideological, and this could be either liberal or communist, alternative international, international order when you have unipolarity and a universalist ideology. And when you have bipolarity or multipolarity, you have a realist international order. Okay? And just to go back to where I was a few minutes ago, you understand this is why during the Cold War, when you had a bipolar world, it was a realist international order. And it's why when the Cold War ended, when the Cold War ended and you went from bipolarity to unipolarity, then you had the possibility of a liberal world order. Okay? So my argument is you can only have a liberal world order in a unipolar world. And you can only have it in a unipolar world because that's the only circumstance under which a great power does not have to worry about the balance of power. You don't have to worry about the balance of power and you can pursue liberal policies. One final distinction I want to make and I attempt I debated whether to put this in because I don't want to complicate things too much. But just in terms of the scope of institutions, I think some institutions are what I would call full scale. Uh, this should be the scope of orders, I'm sorry. 
it should be the scope of orders. Full-scale order, partial order, and a sparse order. A full-scale order is an order that encompasses both economic and military institutions. A partial order only includes economic or military institutions, and a sparse order includes neither. It includes institutions that deal with peripheral issues. Okay? But no need to pay much attention to that. It was in the paper, and I just put it up here. Okay, there's my summary of categories. Kinds of institutions. Is it international or is it bounded? It's the first question you want to ask. Second is kinds of, I put in the word institutions. This is a mistake. It should be kinds of orders, right? Uh, is it full-scale, partial, or sparse? And then kinds of international orders. Is it agnostic, ideological, or realist? Okay, that's basically all the categories. Now, question is, why are orders necessary? There are basically two reasons. And I hinted at the first one before. They're very important for efficiently managing relations among states uh, in an increasingly interdependent world. There's no way you can operate in the modern world without an order. The only interesting question is, what does that order look like? There's no way you can operate in the modern world without institutions. Institutions which make up an order, institutions, these rules, are essential for making international politics work. Second reason that orders are necessary is they help great powers influence the behavior of weaker states in the system. Great powers set up institutions, they create orders to manage the weaker powers in the system. The United States, as you all know, is deeply committed to preventing nuclear proliferation. For purposes of creating, for purposes of preventing nuclear proliferation, the United States helped set up with the Soviet Union the NPT, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It helped set up the Nuclear Suppliers Group, which was designed to combat proliferation. It helped set up the IAEA. We have this whole non-proliferation regime that the great powers set up, and the great powers basically set that non-proliferation regime up to prevent minor powers, smaller powers in the system, weaker states, from acquiring nuclear weapons. So orders are not only important for purposes of managing relations among state, for helping out on the governance front, they're also important for great powers to manipulate minor powers in ways that suit their interests. Let's talk about the history of the liberal international order. <coughs> and what we want to do here, and I've already hinted where I'm going, is talk about the Cold War orders and then talk about the post-Cold War order. Okay. My argument is that if you look at the Cold War, what you see is that there was a relatively weak, realist international order, and there were two robust, bounded orders. The Soviet-led communist order on one side, and the US-led Western order on the other side. Now, let me just say a bit more about these. Oh, or, sorry. Uh, the realist international order was sparse. 
it was weak. It was weak in part because there was very little economic intercourse between East and West during the Cold War. It's hard for you younger people in the room to imagine this, but the United States and the Soviet Union did not engage in much economic intercourse during the Cold War. So we did not create institutions of an economic sort to manage those economic relations. And in terms of the security front, there was an intense security competition from the beginning of the Cold War to the end of the Cold War that was carried on by the bounded orders. Right? So inside that, let's just talk about the US-led Western order, that bounded order that existed in the Cold War. That included the IMF, the World Bank, GATT, which was the predecessor of the WTO. It included the EU. It included NATO. All of those institutions that are so famous today that Donald Trump has his gun sights on, they were created at the end of World War II and in the early years of the Cold War. And they were all part of a bounded order. They were in no way, shape or form, international in scope. Because the Soviets had their own order and they had their own set of institutions that included Comic-Con, Comintern, right, and the Warsaw Pact. So you had two bounded orders that dominated during the Cold War. And to the extent that you had an international order, it mainly involved arms control agreements. Remember I talked about countering proliferation? And I said to you that the United States and the Soviet Union jumped in bed together to create the IAEA, the NPT, and the NSG, the Nuclear Suppliers Group. They created these institutions. They created this order at the international level to combat proliferation. But that's not where the heart and soul of the security competition took place. That's actually where they were cooperating. That's where you had a sparse, realist international order. It was the bounded orders that really mattered. And of course, when the Cold War ends, and this is where the story really gets interesting, right? you get the post-Cold War order. And really what happens here is that the Soviet bounded order falls apart. The Soviet Union disappears. The Warsaw Pact disappears. The Soviet's bounded order disappears. And the West's bounded order is sitting there in really excellent shape. We won the Cold War. And basically, what the United States and its European allies do is they decide that they're going to take this bounded order and expand it all over the globe. And they're going to create a truly liberal international order. Now, you remember my argument is you cannot have a truly liberal international order unless you're in unipolarity. And the argument is that you're in unipolarity once the Cold War ends and certainly after the Soviet Union collapses. And you're not only in unipolarity, the pole, the sole pole in the system is a liberal state. It's the United States of America. And not only that, it has all these institutions that are left over from the Cold War that are considered to be perfect framework for creating a liberal international order. 
All you have to do is spread them across the planet. You have to spread democracy, remember? Increase economic openness, more globalization, and build more institutions. So, just to give you a good example of what happens, uh, I talked about NATO and EU expansion and the color revolutions. Think about what US or Western policy was in Eastern Europe after the Cold War ended. NATO expansion. Mid-1990s, the Clinton administration puts that idea forward. 1999 is the first expansion. That's when countries like Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary come in. Then in 2004, you have another big expansion. At the same time, the EU is expanding. At the same time, we're fostering color revolutions in the East. The Rose Revolution in Georgia, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. What are we doing here? What we're doing is we're taking that order, what Carl Deutsch used to call a security community, in Western Europe, and we're going to encompass all of Europe. And the idea is if you do that, you'll live happily ever after. We're talking about spreading democracy. What do you think the color revolutions are about? We're talking about spreading institutions and incorporating new states into those institutions. What do you think NATO and EU expansion are all about? We're talking about economic openness. The name of the game is to get these countries in Eastern Europe hooked on capitalism, integrate them into the international system. Of course, the same thing is true with regard to our policy towards China. Right? A policy of engagement. The name of the game is to get them into these international institutions, to get them into the open international economy. One of our biggest accomplishments is getting them into the World Trade Organization. And the belief is that once this happens, China will turn into a democracy. Because the name of the game here is to spread democracy all across the globe. And of course, you all know about the Bush Doctrine. What was the Bush Doctrine all about? It was basically using the mailed fist to run across the Middle East and turn all of those countries that were authoritarian states into democracy. And then get them into institutions. And to hook them on capitalism. This is spreading the liberal international order. A very different way of approaching international politics than we did during the Cold War. So you see how different the Cold War was, right, where you had a bounded order in the West, provided the seeds of that liberal international order, and you had a bounded order in the East, dominated by the Soviet Union, and then you had this sparse, realist international order. And again, John's basic point is when you're in a bipolar world like that, and to get way ahead of myself, we're moving into a multipolar world now. You can kiss the liberal international order goodbye in John's story, because once you transit from unipolarity to multipolarity, you can't have a liberal international order. Not to mention the fact that China and Russia are not liberal democracies. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. Now, we get to this really important question. Why is the liberal world order under siege? My basic argument is that the liberal international order contains the seeds of its own destruction. It has six fatal flaws. Okay. The first flaw is that there are alternatives to liberal democracy that people find very attractive. Now, you Americans in the room will find this very hard to believe, but if you go to Russia today, 
and you mention the word democracy, you'll notice people frowning, wanting to spit, getting angry. They identified democracy with what happened in the 1990s. They, they associate democracy with the Wild West that the Soviet Union turned into when it collapsed and became Russia. They, they don't like democracy. There are countries around the world that are perfectly happy being soft authoritarian states, thank you. You might not like that. You might like, you might like living in a democracy, but the fact is that not everybody does. And this creates a real problem, because when the Cold War ended, Frank Fukuyama wrote his very famous piece, The End of History, the basic assumption was that democracy had defeated fascism in the first half of the 20th century, communism in the second half of the 20th century, and the future was all about democracy. That's where we were headed. We had the wind at our back. That's basically what Frank said. Democracy is, liberal democracy, is what we're going to have in virtually every state on the planet over time. It's quite clear that that is not the case anymore. And in fact, it's not only that authoritarian systems are attractive to some nations in the world, it's also the fact that there are all sorts of problems with liberal democracy. You look at liberal democracy in America today, and it does not look like a very attractive option. Second flaw is that the crusading sole pole, and that sole pole does become a crusader state because it's bent on spreading democracy all around the globe because it believes that democracy is the best way to organize one's political system. It ends up in endless wars against the world's minor powers because the sole pole is militarily powerful enough that it can easily contemplate toppling regimes all over the world. And if you believe that everybody wants to turn their country into a liberal democracy and all you have to do is get rid of the tyrant to achieve that end, it's not long before you're off on a crusade. And you all understand that the United States is a crusader state. It's been on a crusade since the Cold War ended. We have fought seven wars, seven wars since the Cold War ended, and we have been at war for two out of every three years since the Cold War ended. And this, despite the fact we lose all these wars. The United States loses. It's not like they're out there winning wars, but they're out there fighting all these wars, right? Uh, and this has consequences. Again, Donald Trump pointed it out in the Republican primaries when he ran against a lot of Republican hawks and when he ran against George W. Bush. We lose. We're losers, right? But we fight endless wars, and that has real costs. Third point you want to remember is that the crusading state can fight wars against minor powers. That's my second point. But it can't fight wars against major powers like Russia and China. So what it does in those cases, right, is it goes to great lengths to use international institutions, uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, and so forth and so on to spread democracy in countries like Russia and China. The United States has worked very hard to promote democracy in China and in Russia since the Cold War ended. Well, the Chinese and the Russians do not like this one bit. You, you know how excited we get when the Russians intervene in American elections? This is called a violation 
of American sovereignty. Well, do you know when I was a little boy, my mother taught me what's good, is goo what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So don't you think if we're trying to interfere in the politics of China and Russia that they're going to get irate? That they're going to be angry, just like you get irate and you get angry when you hear the Russians are interfering in our politics? That's what happens. So they are very, very upset about this. And if anything, they don't want democracy, which they associate with the United States, which they see as basically evil. And remember, for the liberal international order to work, you've got to spread democracy. So just think about all those great wars that we fight and lose. And you, you've seen these viable democracies that we've produced in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Give me a break, right? So we fail there. We failed with Russia. We failed with China. And again, there's a viable alternative. Fourth point, very important point. The order clashes with nationalism, most powerful political ideology on the planet, by undermining sovereignty and national identity. You want to understand Brexit, you want to understand Donald Trump, these two points about undermining sovereignty and national identity really matter. What about sovereignty? You understand that modern nation states privilege sovereignty, self-determination. Gets back to my point about Russians interfering in our elections, us interfering in the politics of Russia and China. States really care about their sovereignty. But the problem is that in the international system that exists today, states delegate significant amounts of authority to international institutions. You especially see this in a place like Europe with the EU. And what happens is that citizens in those countries who are nationalist at the core resent the idea that international institutions are making decisions for them. Decisions for Brits should be made in London, not in Brussels. It's that kind of mentality. And this, of course, is exactly what Trump understands. Trump understands that the American body politic is nationalistic at the core. Right? It's America first. Think about America first. And the idea that these institutions are acting in ways that take into account the interests of other states, maybe more than they take into account the interests of America, is something that really bothers lots of Americans. So anytime you begin to move to a system where the state delegates authority, some might even say gives up sovereignty or some elements of sovereignty to an institution, you're asking for big trouble and you get Brexit. And the polls show that this is one of the principal underlying reasons you got Brexit. Second thing that happens has to do with national identity. We live in a world where, again, nationalism is the most powerful political ideology on the planet. And people identify with the particular nation that they're part of. In a liberal world order, because liberalism is a universal ideology, it is a universal ideology where every individual on the planet has particular <coughs> rights. The same particular rights, the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of freedom, you know the whole nine yards, right? 
Liberalism is an ideology that does not pay attention to group differences. It's universal in nature. So when you set up the EU, it's not surprising that you quickly begin to think in terms of creating a system, it was called Schengen, where people can move freely from country to country. And furthermore, with regard to refugees, in a liberal world order, you're going to have a very benevolent view towards refugees. Because the focus in liberalism is on the individual, and it's on individual rights. And all individuals are basically treated equally. That's what liberalism is all about. It's not an ideology that emphasizes group differences, which nationalism emphasizes. But this is a world where nationalism is sitting right below the surface, and these days right above the surface in virtually every country on the planet. We live in a planet that's populated by nation states. That's another way of saying nationalism is a mighty powerful force. So you go to Europe, you create the Schengen Agreement, and you allow people to move freely from country to country. And lo and behold, you run into big trouble quite quickly. And again, this is what underpins Brexit. Immigration, open borders, was a huge issue in the vote for Brexit. And what Brits especially resented was East Europeans, Poles and Romanians and others from Eastern Europe coming into Britain. They just did not like that. Why? Because they were nationalistic. And then there was the whole business of refugees. Remember Angela Merkel? Angela Merkel decided that she was going to have a very liberal view regarding refugees from the Middle East. And from a liberal point of view, her position was a noble one. You know how well that one worked, right? You see what's happening in Hungary. You see what's happening in Poland. You see that they're being now categorized as illiberal democracies. You think the Poles and the Hungarians want lots of Syrians in their midst? You think the Germans want lots of Syrians in their midst? We've tried this experiment before. Mixing people up in different countries in Europe, it did not work out very well. Again, nationalism is a very powerful political ideology. It is very difficult to mix people up. But that's not the liberal worldview. The liberal worldview is that individuals are what matter, not groups. All individuals have a certain set of rights, and therefore you can create a system where people are free to move around. So my point to you is that the order clashes with nationalism by undermining sovereignty, sovereignty, that's the idea that decisions are being made in Brussels, and national identity. And fifth, this is very important, and I'm only going to go over it quickly. Uh, I would just say for anybody who hasn't read Donnie Roderick's book, The Paradoxes of Globalization, you should go out and buy a copy and read it. It's a very important book that lays this story out in great detail. Basically what happens is that uh, you go from the Bretton Woods system that existed during the Cold War to hyperglobalization, starting in the late 1980s, but really picking up ahead of steam in the early 1990s. And what happens here 
is that you create a system where uh, capital can flow across borders uh, without hardly any restrictions at all. There were real limits on capital flows during the Cold War. Uh, and uh, not only there were, limits, were there limits on capital flows, but the existing trade system, which was built around GATT, allowed for a lot more protectionism than the WTO, which was created in the early post-Cold War years. Going from GATT to the WTO really mattered a lot because in the GATT world, states could pursue protectionist policies that protected their people in ways they could not in the WTO. Okay, so what happens here in the early 1990s is that globalization really begins to pick up speed as capital flows are no longer anywhere near as restricted as they once were, and as trade right, becomes more liberal. And the end result, as Roderick makes clear, and John Ruggie is another key figure uh, making this argument, what happens is it becomes very difficult for states, for governments, to protect their people. And at the same time, given the dynamic nature of hyperglobalization, given all the creative destruction that is happening, it's more imperative than ever for governments to be able to protect their people. But they are less able to protect their people. Because, as most of you know, because this was the mantra in the world that you grew up in, right? Governments are a source of trouble. Governments are not a solution to the problem. The solution to the problem is the market. This is the Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher view of the world that's actually eventually picked up by the Tony Blairs and the Bill Clintons of the world. Right? It, it's the idea that deregulation is good. Right? More trade is good. This is what happens when you go from GATT to the WTO. You know, unhindered capital flows are good. Right? So you create this remarkably dynamic economy, global economy, that's moving at warp speed. And it's creating all sorts of destruction inside particular countries. You know about people losing jobs inside the United States. And furthermore, it's creating huge amounts of economic inequality. Right? The economic inequality across the planet is really remarkably high. right? Governments are no longer in a position to fix the problem. And they're no longer in a position to fix the problem because, again, the mantra is that the market knows what's best. Right. And, of course, what you get as a result of this is you get a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction with the existing economic system. Not only do you have lots of people who lose their job and can't find a better job, you also have lots of people who have not lost their job, but who fear that they're next. 
because young people today, there are all sorts of polls that show this, young people today are very aware of the fact, right, that they're probably not going to get a job that they're going to hold for the rest of their life, right, that jobs disappear very quickly, that we live in a very dynamic world, and we do live in a very dynamic world. And as Roderick makes clear, and lots of other economists have followed in his wake to make this argument, right, hyper-globalization, Hyper-globalization creates a situation where you have, if anything, a greater need than ever for government intervention. But the government, in this story, is not allowed to do that. Finally, my sixth point, integrating China into the liberal world order ultimately undermined unipolarity. Because we, we took a country that was remarkably backward, we integrated into the liberal world order, uh, and it did all sorts of things, some of which were not really playing according to the rules of the WTO, but they did it anyway. And China has become a very powerful country. And of course, the Russians also got, when the, so when the Cold War ends, the Soviet Union collapses, the Russians get integrated into this liberal international order that the United States and its European allies are creating. And the Russians come back from the dead. So the Russians come back from the dead. The Chinese rise. And now the biggest question is, you know, is China going to overtake the United States? That's where we're at. Well, when you're asking yourself that question, unipolarity is in the rearview mirror. And if unipolarity is in the rearview mirror, liberal international order is gone. It's gone. Because now you're back to balance of power politics. Once you have two or three or more great powers in the system, you can't have a liberal international order. So when we talk about what does the future hold for the liberal international order, my argument is it can hold for two reasons. And it's flawed at its root, right? So people who talk about, you know, there are a lot of very prominent liberal IR theorists who accept much of what I say. My argument, I'm actually quite surprised, my argument is not as controversial as you might think. Lots of people who have been big proponents of the liberal international order understand it's in serious trouble. But their view is that we can fix it. That's where I disagree with them. I don't believe you can fix it. My argument is that those flaws are built into the order. But my second point is it doesn't matter because unipolarity is gone. And without unipolarity, you can't have a liberal international order. So what about the coming international order? Let me, this is my concluding set of comments. Uh, actually going to be somewhat similar to the Cold War orders but different in some important ways. I believe you're going to have a realist international order, and you're going to have a Chinese-led bounded order, and a US-led bounded order. I believe that the United States and China, should China continue to grow, those two countries are going to be the dominant states on the planet. And you're going to have an intense security competition between them, and they're each going to have their own order. Okay. There's a fundamental difference 
between this order and the Cold War order. And it has to do with the fact that during the Cold War, there was no economic intercourse between the United States and the Soviet Union of any consequence. There is a huge amount of economic intercourse between the United States and China, between China and Japan, China and Australia, we go on and on, right? Therefore, you're going to have an international order comprised of economic institutions, some of the existing ones from today and some new ones, some of which the Chinese are creating, that realist international order will deal with economic affairs in a big way. And the two bounded orders will deal mainly with military affairs. During the Cold War, as I told you before, it was a realist international order that was sparse didn't deal with economics, didn't deal with security in a serious way. It was the two bounded orders, the U.S. or Western-led bounded order, uh, Western uh, bounded order, and, and the Soviet-led bounded order that encompassed both security and economic issues. That won't be the case in the future, in my opinion. And the situation is analogous to the situation before World War I, to put it into a broader context. You want to understand that in Europe, before World War I, there was a great deal of economic intercourse. And there was an economic order in Europe before World War I. At the same time, you had the Triple Entente and the Triple Alliance. These are security institutions, right? These were security, these were bounded orders. So you had bounded orders at the security, in the security domain, and you had an international order in the economic domain. And in that sense, it's different than the Cold War. Anyway, I went longer than I had intended, but I wanted to make my arguments as clear as possible. And I look forward to your comments. I'll just take okay. questions. Let me, let me just first say, um, I forgot to ask, please, audience, speak up and speak loudly and clearly, uh, because this is all going to be on a podcast, and uh, John has a microphone, but you guys do not necessarily. Um, so I just want to make that point to you. Go ahead. Okay. This gentleman in the rear. Thank you for coming. Professor Mearsheimer, you foresee a situation where the U.S. will reduce its subsidies to Israel. Just to be clear, the question is, do I foresee a situation where the United States will reduce its subsidy to Israel? The answer is no. Uh, I think the principal driving force behind American uh, support for Israel, both economic, military, militarily, and, uh, and uh, diplomatically, is the power of the Israel lobby. And I see no evidence at this point in time that the lobby is getting any weaker. And as long as the lobby doesn't get any weaker, the level of support will remain the same. Sir. Uh, Professor Mearsheimer. Could you stand up, please, sure. just so everybody can hear? 
So you mentioned that a full-scale order um, includes both economic and security arrangements. Um, could you speak on why there would be a full-scale order in the case of an ideological or an agnostic order if there's a unipole? What is the catalyzing force for a security arrangement, um, particularly for an agnostic order that isn't out trying to crusade? Could you just, uh, I'm not exactly sure what your question is. Uh, what would drive um, a unipole to uh, create security arrangements uh, if it doesn't have to compete, if it doesn't exist within a realist order? Uh, what would be what it's organizing against with its peers? Okay, thank you for clarifying. Look, my argument is that whether you're in an agnostic order or a liberal order, you're in a unipolar world, right? And in a unipolar world, the sole pole is so powerful that it doesn't have to worry about security in the traditional sense of the term. And the basic name of the game is instead to pursue a variety of liberal goals, right? that may ultimately produce peace in the liberal story, but don't have to do with building security arrangements uh, all of the time, okay? So, so what you get in an agnostic order is you get a sole pole, right, that is not that interested in spreading it's ideology around the world, because ideology is not that important. And ideology is not seen as the, the sort of magic formula for producing a peaceful world in the end. Whereas with communism and with liberal democracy, you have a situation where you can imagine, if you can create a situation where if you create a planet that's populated by states that all share the same ideology, you don't have to worry about security at all. Yes. I get you next. Yeah, go ahead. You. Um, so even if this um, kind of system was destined to eventually return to a multipolar world, do you think it was worthwhile to have a liberal order for the last 25 years, given that it was mostly pretty peaceful? Again, when you say it was pretty peaceful, the United States has been involved in wars for two out of every three years right. since the Cold War But ended. you acknowledge that there were golden years, and so if we were going to be in, let's say, 2018, ending up in a multipolar world, no matter what had happened over the last 27 years, which is what you argued, was it better to be in a liberal order for the last kind of 27 years, or do you think it should have, we should have remained in a bipolar or multipolar world? I don't think that's the choice. I think unipolarity was here to stay after 1989 certainly after the Soviet Union falls apart at the end of 1991. Unipolarity is here. And I think the interesting question then is whether the United States uh, creates an agnostic international order or a liberal international order. And I would have preferred that we pursue an agnostic liberal order. Uh, I would not have been in favor of uh, trying to promote democracy all around the world, certainly at the end of a rifle barrel. Uh, I would not have gone to great lengths to spread democracy to countries like Russia and China. Uh, and I would have been much more careful uh, with regard to uh, the growth of international institutions, 
uh, and taking sovereignty away from states or uh, taking authority away from states and giving it to international institutions. Uh, and with regard to the economic front, I think that going to hyperglobalization was a major mistake. I think moving from GATT uh, to the WTO, for example, was a major mistake. Uh, I think that, you know, basically unhindered capital flows was a major mistake. I think if you had to do it all over again economically, you would do it differently. Uh, there wouldn't be drastic differences, but there would be significant differences. So I, I think that you could do it again in a more agnostic and less liberal way, and the United States would be well off. But that's not to take away from your smart point that the 1990s, which was sort of the golden age, uh, do look quite attractive. And of course, the United States was less foolish with regard to starting and fighting wars in the 90s than it was after September 11th. Professor, um, if, like you say, we're approaching two new separate orders, American-led and Chinese-led, how should we, the Americans, sell ourselves to this order? Because I know in nationalism, you've written before that we've been very universalist, and I think in your writing, you quoted Secretary Albright that we've called ourselves the indispensable nation. Should we still try to export liberal democracy to our order, or how do we sell ourselves to make sure people on our side as opposed to the Chinese side? Well, with regard to how we sell ourselves, uh, it raises an important distinction between rhetoric and practice. My argument has always been that in a bipolar or multipolar world, in a world where there's great power competition involved, the United States acts in realist ways and talks in liberal ways. So there's no question that we will always sell our policy in terms of liberal rhetoric. But actually, in terms of how we behave, we will behave in a very realist fashion, right? And there's no question, I think, that the United States will go to great lengths, right, uh, to win friends in its competition with the Chinese. And if that means jumping into bed with countries that violate individual rights, we will do that. States do what they have to do to survive. And again, we will cover it up uh, with liberal rhetoric. Uh, now, I just want to make one point about Madeleine Albright's famous statement. Uh, Madeleine Albright is widely viewed as uh, a liberal icon. If there's you know, any person who sort of represents liberal American foreign policy at its best uh, or at its worst, depending on your viewpoint, it's Madeleine Albright. But if you think about her comment, uh, her very famous comment, that the United States is the indispensable nation. It stands taller. It sees further. This is pure, unadulterated nationalism. And this supports my basic point that Americans, once you scratch the surface, are nationalists to the core. This is what Donald Trump understood, right? Just think about her words. We, we, are the indispensable nation. There's the word nation, nation. She's talking about nation. And she says if we are the indispensable nation, she's referring to us in terms of the other. 
when you compare us to the other, we are indispensable. We stand taller and we see further. In other words, we are superior to the others. That's why we're needed. That's why American leadership is needed. I'm sure that the vast majority of you all believe in the necessity of American leadership in the world. It's drilled into your head. I'm sure that all of you believe in American exceptionalism. What president in his or her right mind would ever go out and cast any doubt on the possibility of American exceptionalism? What do you think American exceptionalism is? It's pure, unadulterated nationalism. We are exceptional. We are the city on the hill. We are the chosen people. We are the indispensable nation. Right? So what you see is that liberalism is inextricably mixed up with nationalism in the American story. Right? And as David Armitage, who teaches at Harvard, has written, if you read the Declaration of Independence, you all ought to go home and read the Declaration of Independence tonight. Right? What you'll see is, in many ways, the Declaration is a deeply liberal document. It talks about individual rights. And you know how much emphasis I've put on individual rights and how that leads to universalism and how that's at the heart of the liberal story. But if you go read the Declaration of Independence, as David Armitage points out, it's filled with nationalist rhetoric. Ho Chi Minh, as many of you know, loved the Declaration of Independence. But he didn't love it for its liberalism. He loved it for its nationalism. Right? So those two things are both there all the time. And the point I would make, and this is the central theme of the book, is that you run liberalism up against nationalism and realism. And the realism part of the story was my answer to you, and now I'm embellishing the nationalism part of the story. My argument is you run liberalism up against nationalism and realism, right? Nationalism and realism win all the time. So if we get to this Chinese-bounded and US-bounded bipolar security world, where do you see those sub-major powers aligning themselves inside of that world being India, Pakistan, and Russia? Uh, did everybody hear the question? OK. Uh, first of all, I think it'll be a multipolar world. I think the Russians are a third great power. This is a minor point, but just, just to be perfectly clear, I think there'll be three great powers. But I think two of them will be much more powerful than the third, which kind of dovetails with the thrust of your point. The Chinese and the Americans are the two future guerrillas. And the Russians, Russia's a declining great power. Okay. So the question is, where do they end up? India and Pakistan, I think, are easy to answer. I think India is with the United States. I think Pakistan is with China, right? Uh, I think Japan, South Korea, Australia, Vietnam, um, India, th they're, they're with the United States. And I, I could tell you the handful of countries I think go with the Chinese. I think the North Koreans go with the Chinese, Cambodia, Laos. Uh, Iran. That's a, whole, that's a n very important subject, but let's put that aside, because that opens up another whole can of worms, right? That, that's a very important question. Yeah, let's leave that aside. But, uh, but, uh, uh, but the, I think the most interesting question, I mean, countries like Myanmar are interesting questions, but the really interesting question is the Russians. And one of the reasons I think Trump was correct to want to improve relations with the Russians is that we should want the Russians on our side for the purposes of containing China. 
in my opinion, it's strategic idiocy to drive the Russians into the arms of the Chinese. I just don't understand this at all. I like to say that if the present foreign policy establishment were in charge of fighting World War II, instead of joining with the Soviet Union to fight against Nazi Germany, they would have declared war against both the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. This is crazy, right? We have all sorts of interests to have good relations with the Russians. Syria is one. Iran is another one. Terrorism is another one. Keeping peace in Eastern Europe is another one. And most importantly, the case of China. So I think the really interesting question is what happens with Russia and its relations with the United States and China over time. My theory says that with the passage of time, the Russians and the Americans will make up and they will form part of a balancing coalition against China. But that theory does not look good at this particular point in time when you look at the empirical evidence. Yeah. Thanks, Professor, by the way, for coming. Um, really quick, my question was, when you recognize that um, hyperglobalism is kind of one of the seeds or issues for Hyperglobalization. Hyperglobalization is one of the reasons why liberalism will probably fail in the end. Or well, the liberal international order fail. Right, yes. Um, my question is, when you talk about liberalism being the focus on individuals and not, you know, not emphasizing identity, but nationalism emphasizes identity, yes. um, couldn't you then say that hyper-globalization, in a sense, nationalism would be based off of like a citizen working to benefit the state based on an economic, you know, uh, based on working in a certain labor in that state? And if hyperglobalism is based on the fact that hyperglobalization is based on the fact of, you know, um, creating more free trade and opening up barriers and cash flow, wouldn't the argument then be that liberalism is promoting individual, you know, the individual and protection of the individual? But in certain states, what we consider to be wrong, what we consider to be, because we're democratic, uh, treatment of certain people in the workforce, in a national identity sense, like for example in China, some people are actually willing to work in certain areas. Like um, for Nike, they'll work in really you know, unfair and uh, really horrible labor forces. But my point is that if the argument then is that hyperglobalism in itself, globalization is bad, then couldn't you also say that it's good because it's creating a certain system or national identity that promotes individual like, rights and stuff like that, but in the sense that national identity itself is creating a more unified, um, unified kind of identity based off the fact that liberal liberalism still promotes individual rights, but it's not saying, you know, we're going to, you know, we deny and don't want China to continue to do what it does. But, you know, if they are willing to do it, it's okay. okay. Let me make two points in response. First of all, I think that in a world of hyper-globalization, right, there, there is no question that you get situations around the world where workers in poorer countries are exploited. And uh, I think that uh, that's not a good thing. Uh, and I, I think that the United States has actually gone to some lengths to try and deal with that. Not great lengths, but some lengths. But that's, that's one result. Uh, but I think the more important point I would make is that as a result of hyper-globalization, you've got a class of people who benefit greatly from globalization. It's, it's what I would call uh, uh, the liberal international elite. Uh, and 
Sam Huntington, in his famous book, The Clash of Civilization, uh, referred to these people as Davos men. I think you could call them at this point in time Davos men and women. Uh, these are people who all speak English, who are very comfortable schmoozing with each other all the time, and actually don't have remarkably powerful uh, national identities. And where you see the really powerful national identities is down below in all these societies. Uh, and I think that many people who benefited greatly from hyperglobalization and became very comfortable operating with people from other countries and felt that they were all part of sort of a seamless web were actually shocked when, glo when, when nationalism reared its head and Brexit happened in 2016. And then a few months later, Donald Trump was elected president in the United States. If you sort of think about what was going on, Hillary Clinton really represented, as did the Republican presidential candidates, in very important ways, this sort of global <laughs> liberal elite. Right? It was associated with banks and financial institutions, with universities. You ever think about universities? Universities, and this is what makes them really wonderful places, are fundamentally liberal institutions. Just think about all the foreign students that we have at universities, right? It's very hard to find a professor at a major American university who has a nice thing to say about nationalism. Nationalism is not an ism that is privileged at universities. Right? When I deal with students, if I deal with a student who comes from Lower Slobovia, and I deal with another student who comes from the United States, I don't treat them any differently. I treat them all the same. So it makes universities wonderful places. They're fundamentally liberal institutions. We don't you know, invoke national security when we're dealing with students. Everybody's the same. Heck, look at all the foreign students or international students on university campuses. Most schools are aiming for 15%. There are some schools like the University of Washington that have more than 15% foreign students. And this is considered to be a wonderful thing because universities are fundamentally international institutions. But you want to remember that they operate in a world where nationalism is the most powerful political ideology where people are very proud of the fact that they're an American. And that's why Donald Trump can run on a platform that emphasizes America first. And any Democrat who runs in 2020 against him or whoever is the Republican candidate at the time better remember the importance of emphasizing right, America first in one shape or form or another. Right, let me get the, this gentleman here. Had his, you should stand up. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Uh, I, my question is related to, well, I'm curious why you limited uh, nationalism as a fault of just imposing a liberal international order, and why it might not be just a um, barrier for a unipole imposing any sort of international order, be it ideological or agnostic. Um, it seems like one power trying to create institutions or create some sort of 
uh, process by which countries in the world are told, you know, prescribed and proscribed what they can do would trigger some sort of nationalist sentiment about self-determination. Yeah, I, I don't think I was clear enough. What I, what I was trying to say was that in an agnostic international order, the sole pole does not try to impose its ideology on other states. It cares about the behavior of other states. Right. It doesn't want other states misbehaving in ways that hinder the sole pole or hurt the interests of the sole pole. So it cares about that. But it's not interested in turning every country into a liberal democracy or if you're the Soviet Union, turning every country into a communist state. It's sort of a modus vivendi approach to international politics. I don't think most Americans can really grasp this because they don't understand just how unusual it is. But again, the United States believes deeply that liberal democracy is the best political system in the world. And it would be really wonderful if we could export liberal democracy to every nook and cranny of the planet. And that that would have all sorts of benefits. This is what I write about in the book. First of all, if you believe in democratic peace theory, unlike Sebastian Rosato, if you believe in democratic peace theory, then you believe that spreading democracy makes the world more peaceful. If you believe that liberal democracies don't violate the rights of their citizens in any meaningful way, then spreading liberal democracy solves the human rights problem in large part. If you believe that spreading liberal democracy makes the world safe for liberal democracy, John Owen has written a great book on this, then spreading liberal democracy guarantees that your liberal democracy will survive for almost ever. So if you believe those things, then the incentives to spread your political ideology all over the planet are just tremendous. And of course, this is what the United States has tried to do. But my argument, again, is that nationalism makes it impossible to do this, because nationalism is all about sovereignty and self-determination. And other countries don't want you, you know, telling them how to run their politics. Professor Mearsheimer, thank you uh, very much for your provocative uh, comments. I'm, I'm finding them enlightening. I'm and, shocked and that you I, found I them provocative. Them. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> you'll be disappointed to hear that I, I think you're spot on with regard to liberalism. I really do. But I think you're, of course, being extremely generous to realism. You made the one comment that Bush tried to force, using military force, liberalism on other countries. And of course, you're absolutely right. I mean, liberalism, the whole idea is for internal governance. It was never meant to be a theory of international relations. But what Bush did was take perhaps, forgive me, a bastardized version of realism and use military force to try to promote this liberalism. And really, Madeleine Albright is doing the same. The human rights hawks are realist plus liberal so they've used the, the core idea of realism, militarism, to try to promote this. And this is in part why it goes so extremely badly wrong 
And I, I think it's more than two out of three years of military force since the end of the Cold War. But what did realism rise with its fundamental militarist idea about the world to, to uh, replace? E.H. Carr and Morgenthau are trying to replace international law. Not international institutions, but the system of international law as a way to ground world order as the Westphalian order system. And I, I just suggest to you that that has persisted and is an alternative that is very positive for the United States. And the Chinese are fascinated. Right now, what are they doing? They're, they're playing through both your view of realism by putting military bases in Djibouti and Pakistan and so forth, but they also require international law at all of their 600 law schools. We don't require it at any of our law schools. They, are, they have a judge at the International Court of Justice. They are learning international law, not just what the law within institutions and how to play the WTO and so forth. They're actually learning that as, so they're prepared for both in this next era that they, like you and I, see as possibly the Chinese era. And I think one of the great weaknesses of the US is that we, we no longer under, even understand international law. Our president certainly doesn't, neither does his national security advisor. Good. Uh, I, I want to make three points to Mary Ellen. Uh, first of all, I, I didn't make this clear in my talk. I make it clear in the book, and uh, I should make it clear. I think that liberalism or liberal democracy is a wonderful political order to live in. And as I say in the book, I thank my lucky stars that I was born and raised in liberal democratic America. Okay? So I'm not just beating up on liberalism. But I make the distinction, which she made in her initial comments, that there's a difference between liberalism inside the black box inside a country versus a liberal foreign policy. And I don't like a liberal foreign policy because I think it leads to no good. We can argue about that, but that's my view. But I want to be clear that I think that living in a liberal democracy is a wonderful thing. And I personally think it would be wonderful if everybody lived in a liberal democracy. But this gets to my second point about realists. I think you're being unfair to realists. Uh, realists have their problems. But the thing about realists is they don't care much about smaller and weaker countries because they don't have a lot of power. So virtually all the realists, including people in this room like Mike and I, right, signed an ad arguing that the Iraq war was a major mistake. I mean, you know that, that we, virtually all the realists, except for Henry Kissinger, were against the Iraq war. Virtually all the realists except Henry Kissinger were against the Vietnam War, right? And it's because Vietnam has no strategic importance to the United States. Iraq has no strategic importance to the United States. It's this kind of argument, uh, at least in the context in which we went into Iraq in 2003. Uh, so realists are not interested in spreading democracy. And what Bush did in 2003 was antithetical to realism. I would also note to you, there is no president since Woodrow Wilson who is more of a Wilsonian than George W. Bush. It's really quite remarkable. His commitment to spreading democracy is unparalleled since Wilson. 
Clinton, Obama were not even close. Read his second inaugura inaugurational, inaugurational address, right? It's really quite remarkable, right? So I would argue that what Bush did with the Bush doctrine was not realist, it was very liberal. This is not to say they weren't using the mailed fist, they were, and in that sense you might want to say it was realist. Let's say a word about international law. I think you're basically right that people like Morgenthau, people like Carr, had their gun sights on international law. Uh, and I think in a funny way, despite all the emphasis on rules in the liberal story, right, the liberals in the end don't pay much attention to international rules or international law, right? So as you know better than I do, there's a whole laundry list of cases where since the end of the Cold War, the United States has violated, in rather blatant ways, international law and not behaved in a liberal way if you identify liberalism with international law, right? But the big difference between you and me on this issue, just for those of you who don't know, is that as a realist, I believe that international law is not very important, unlike Mary Ellen, because I believe that in a system where there's no higher authority, right, states will do whatever they have to do to survive, and if that means violating international law, they'll violate international law. So I think that's the big point of difference between us. Yes? Yeah. Um. Thank you for coming. Uh, how would you predict that the future multipolar bounded order that you describe in your talk, um, how would you think that that would impact our ability to confront and deal with uh, global challenges like climate change as these challenges could probably only be solved by global cooperation? Yeah, I, I, I think on the whole subject of, uh, of climate change, uh, I think that can only be solved at the international level. Right, and you remember I said that I thought that you would have uh, an international order, assuming China continues to rise, you'd have an international order that was largely concerned with economic matters because you'd have all this economic intercourse that you have today in the future. So it would deal with economic intercourse, all those economic institutions that would comprise the order, and you'd have the non-proliferation arms control agreements. And I think hopefully you would have some set of agreements, some set of institutions uh, that deal with climate change and, and, and related problems. But that would have to take place up there. A bounded order would do you very little good in, in that regard. Thank you, Professor. Um, assuming that the United States is in decline and China is rising, what would prevent China from becoming a unipole? Uh, this is an interesting question. First of all, you want to understand that when you say the United States is in decline, if the United States is in decline, it's relative to China. The United States is continuing to grow in terms of its population size and in terms of its wealth. The two principal indicators of military power are population size and wealth. And, and we're, we're doing very well on both of those. The problem is that given all the people that China has, given all that potential, it may grow faster. And it has been growing faster in recent years. The $64,000 question here is what does China's economic future look like? And how does it compare to America's economic future? Uh, 
I would suggest that you go out and read this new book by Michael Beckley, uh, who teaches at Tufts. If you folks haven't had Beckley here, you should really have him here. Uh, uh, there are a whole slew of us who read the book for uh, Cornell University Press and blurbed it. It is really, I think the word that they use from my blurb on the back is masterful. <coughs> it is really an amazing book. And I thought that China was going to overtake the United States and that uh, uh, the world was going to be China's oyster, to put it in rather extreme terms. But after reading the Beckley book, I, I think the Chinese are going to have a tough time uh, you know, uh, overtaking the United States. And Beckley's argument is they're not going to overtake the United States. And it's a very well done piece. Uh, but, um, but, but, you know, who knows what ultimately will happen to the United States or to China? Uh, go to Mike. Pardon? This should be the last question. You sure? I go, go. It, it, it's only 6 o'clock. <laughs> we don't go to 8 o'clock here? I'm just warming up. These are great questions. I'm sorry, Rose. No, that's I just want to ask you really quickly about this agnostic soul poll. I mean, I get the liberal argument, um, but the agnostic soul poll is new, and I'm having my uh, a little bit of trouble getting my head around it. First of all, can you give me an example of one? China. No, no, China's not a uh, unipolar yet. If it was. Well, yeah, 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 but okay, that's uh, pro projecting into the future. Um, but give me some historical examples of that. And, and why does this matter? Um, it, it matters. It's not just a niggling point, I think, but it, it matters because it really comes down to what's driving your argument about the unsustainability of unipolarity. Um, if you're right, I think the logic of your argument is, is it, if an agnostic uh, soul poll came out there, uh, unipolarity would be a lot more durable than it would be under a liberal or some other uh, universalistic um, soul poll. Um, and, and I get the logic, but I'm just not thinking of any examples. And there's all sorts of other theories that you know better than me that suggest why unipolarity sh should be, uh, you know, uh, unstable that have nothing to do uh, with the nature of the ideology state. So help me understand agnostic soul polls. There Tell are, me about one. There are, there are none. Okay. Then maybe it's an empty category uh, in your uh, argument uh, in terms of... No, it's, an, it's not an empty category in my argument. It's an empty category in the real world. Right. So why is it... John Mearsheimer, arch realist. No, <laughs> why is this metaphysical category in your argument? <laughs> Metaphysical is a word that's designed to stick the dagger. <laughs> metaphysical. When did, I, when did I ever use a metaphysical term? No, look, it's a theory. And what I, what I tried to do, and, and, I, and I was motivated by the fact that I've read a number of articles, as I said in the beginning, where people would talk about the liberal international order and they wouldn't define it. And I slowly but steadily, you know, uh, try to figure out exactly what the different kinds of orders are, right? Both international order and then international versus bounded, and then the sparse and all that. 
and just to sort of try and make sense of the world because as you know that's what a theory does a theory is designed we live in this incredibly complicated world i don't know about you but every day i gotta try and make sense of what's going on out there and it's not easy to do because it's a very complicated world and what we need to help us think about the world and this is why you should take ir theory courses and other theory courses is we need simple theories that provide frameworks, so to speak, that allow us to try and make sense of the world. And I was just saying that you can imagine, you know, an agnostic, an ideological, which is a liberal or communist, right, or a realist international order. Those were the three that I could imagine. Uh, but I could not think of a case of an agnostic international order, right? And uh, and I could only think of one case of a liberal international order, right, which is the post-Cold War period that we've just, you know, gone through. Uh, and uh, it, it's just, you know, it's, it's like multipolarity in nuclear weapons, right? We've had nuclear weapons since 1945. Well, the world was bipolar from 45 to 90, and then it was unipolar. So we know about nuclear weapons in a bipolar world, and we know about nuclear weapons in a unipolar world. But if you say to me, John, you've just told me a story about nuclear weapons in a multipolar world. Give me some examples. I have to say to you, Mike, I can't do it because we really haven't had it yet. We're moving into that world, and I can tell you what my theory predicts. You know, this woman just asked a question about China. Let's assume that Beckley's wrong. Now let's assume that the United States is really in serious trouble and we begin to come apart at the seams and China grows and grows and grows and China is the sole pole, right? Then my theory says certain, <coughs> excuse me, certain things about how China should behave. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what I tried to do. But anyway, uh, can I take one more question? I'll, you have to be quick, otherwise Rose is going to pull me off the stage for the cave. What about ancient China? That is, it was the superpower, but it doesn't have the, the desire to export its ideology to other countries. Yeah, uh, her, her question about China uh, way back when. Uh, the question is, was it, you know, how do you determine what is a sole pole or a unipole? Are we talking about the entire system? And if we're talking about the entire system, China was not a unipole. If you want to just talk about a regional system, right, let's just say greater Asia, then you might be able to make the point, you know, you could do this. It's a definitional issue in large part. You could argue that China was, you know, a unipole in greater Asia. And you could argue that back then the world was not interconnected. Right, transportation and communication networks were such that it makes sense to talk about greater Asia as pretty much a self-contained entity. And yes, as you say, China was a, uh, uh, a sole pole in that entity. And if you look at how China behaved, it does kind of look like it behaved in a rather agnostic way, right? The Chinese, I think, I don't know that much Chinese history, so I'm going out on a limb here. But to the extent that I know uh, anything about Chinese foreign policy over time, uh, the Chinese remind me a lot of the Ottoman Empire, 
you know, when the Turks ran the Ottoman Empire, they had kind of a live and let live approach to the groups that operated underneath them. And they were not interested in converting them into X's or Y's or Z. And that's my sense of the Chinese as well, that, uh, that they did behave sort of like an agnostic soul Paul. But I'd really have to study that before I felt comfortable, you know, writing it down. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash NDISC forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap. <laughs>